How can you sell more and sell more profitably in today's ever-changing economy? Today, we have Patrick Tinney, author of The Bonus Round here on episode nine of The Pete Primo Show. This show is brought to you by my book, Sell a Million, 101 Tips for Furniture and Mattress Store Owners to Sell Another Million Dollars or More this year. Get it right now on Amazon. This week's guest is Patrick Tinney. And Pat not only wrote the bonus round, which we're going to be talking about, but he also wrote Unlocking Yes, a book that I desperately needed a few years ago, and Perpetual Hunger, a book after my own heart. So three books, one author, and all the knowledge of a veteran who has seen it all and done it all. Pat, how are you today? I tell you, Pete, I'm stoked, man. I even put a tie on for you. Thank you. I put on a flannel shirt for you, Pat. This is a flannel shirt. It's just a different kind of flannel. This is a Norwegian flannel. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So we have three audiences here. Um, basically, we get uh, store owners, business owners. We also get RSAs who work on retail floors. And the third one would be uh, sales reps. If you're a sales rep and you do not buy this book, the bonus round, you are absolutely nuts. You are missing it. Pat wrote this book for B2B salespeople, but I'm going to tell you something a little bit unusual. I'm going to say to you as a store owner, you need to buy this book. You need to buy it for a number of reasons. Pat was in the advertising industry and the history that is in this book and the sales lessons that apply to all sales, not just wholesale sales or B2B sales, the same exact lessons apply to B2C sales. So you need anybody listening to this, you should get this book. It's a great book and it's a fun book. One of the things that Pat did for guys like me, who sometimes are a little preoccupied, he told the story and then at the end, he wrote lessons learned. So that even if I wanted to, forget about the lesson learned. I couldn't because he put it right there in the book. So Pat, I am hogging all your time. I just have to ask you a question. As I went through this, how old are you really? Because you'd have to be 150 years old to live all these stories. It's, I Come love on. this book. I can't be kidding you. I mean, <laughs> you, you know, it, it's really funny. Um, maybe I'm an old soul. I don't know. But I can remember 20 years ago, people saying, Danny, I think you're older than dirt. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I love retail so much. As a little kid, I can remember 
saying to myself, because I, I, all the jobs that I took, I mean, I would go work in convenience stores. I would rack bottles in the basements of buildings with rats. I would pick worms. I shoveled snow. I delivered groceries. The bike was bigger than I was. Remember they had those big bikes with a small wheel at the front and the big wheel at the back and the huge basket. And you'd have to carry these boxes up like three stories. And, you know, I mean, all of that stuff rolls forward. And, you know, um, in high school, uh, you know, I won't sort of go over this whole story about how broke I was. Everybody's got that story. Uh, but um, the, the thing is, I needed money and I needed it. I bad. actually and, I want you to tell a little bit about that story, because that's one of the strongest things that connect us is our shared poverty in our youth. Yeah, um, I was born into bankruptcy. Um, my dad built the theater in a small town called Campbellford, which is pretty close to where I live now. Uh, after I lived all over Canada, I, I came back up into the area and his partner never paid him. And so in the old days, you used to sign for things. You'd walk into a store and at the end of the month, you go and you pay your bills. But because my dad was one of the pillars of the community, my grandfather was, you know, he was a mason for 50 years. So he was head of the lodge. My dad was involved with the kinsmen. My mother was a, a canette. I mean, you know, our involvement in, uh, in the community was so big that when this happened, we had to leave the community. And then my dad took a job as a welder at International Harvester. After nine years and us taking in tenants, and taking in our whole family. I, not many people know this, but I only slept in my own room for two years out of my entire life until I was 18. My bedroom was the dining room or the floor. And I thought I had it bad. And my mom, after my dad, my dad died, he went to work, I was nine. I remember my sister was 16. I didn't get to say goodbye to him. And in those days you weren't considered a human until you were 10. So the following year, I would have gone on this trout fishing trip with him. Now, I mean, I had my son in my canoe when he was two and my mother screaming from the shore, don't do that. <laughs> but, you know, it's just a totally different way of thinking because um, in those days, I needed money so badly. And I remember my mom pulling me aside after my dad died and she said, son, I, we don't have anything. We got a little coin collection. There's no insurance. The company gave us a little bit of money. I got to go back to high school. I got a grade nine education. You know, your uncle is going to be living with us. I don't know how long we can hold this together. And if you want to stay in school, you're going to have to go figure out how to make money. All I can do is supply you with a, a, a roof over your head. So I did everything. I, I, if, if it was legal, I did it. And in the end, I started delivering pianos shortly after I broke my back when I was 14 running track. And uh, yeah, and I was on the volleyball team and I had to take a year off of sports. And I thought... I'm going to start lifting things that are so heavy that either it will kill me or I'm going to get better. And so uh, I lied about my age to get on with this piano moving company. And within about a year and a half, I was running the whole crew and hiring everybody from the football team to the basketball team to help me come deliver pianos, all over pianos and organs and all over, you know, sort of the southern Ontario uh, area, uh, you know, sort of as, as, uh, I, I guess the borderline would be around Mississauga or something like that uh, in Toronto. So we were all over the place. I was working up to 40 hours a week and going to school. So I'd get up in the morning, eat as much food as I could, go to school. Didn't know why I was in school. 
because it was interfering with my ability to make money. And I was making in those days, I was making almost as much money as my mother because I had to pay for my clothes, pay for all my athletic stuff. I had to pay for everything. And um, I can remember, this is going to sound really weird, but my mother went to a teacher interview and she was there with the vice principal who taught me economics, I think, for a while. And I went and I did a co-op at the Hamilton Spectator when everybody else was going off and looking at steel companies and all kinds of other things that were in the area around Hamilton, Ontario, where I lived. I went and walked into this newspaper, uh, the Hamilton Spectator. Everybody's standing there and they're, they're on the phone. They're laughing and drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes and they're making little drawings and they're saying, hey, guys, I'll be back at noon. We'll all go Joe's for wings and, you know, come on, let's go out there and make some money and we're all going to have a great time. And I went back to school and I said, I'm in the wrong business. Take me out of all of the sciences, all of this, anything that doesn't have to do with business. And I want you to take every course that is left in the school and I want it all to be business. So I was in, I was in classes with only one other guy. They were all women. I could keyboard 40 words a minute before I even got to college. Which is why I walked away. <laughs> that course was over, uh, you know. But the thing is, um, it taught me so much about what it was to be an entrepreneur. But I didn't know what the word meant. There was no such thing as the word entrepreneur in those days. It was just like you're a small business owner, right? And so my mother went to this parent-teacher interview, and Mr. Wong was there, and he's like about five foot six, and everybody in the school was fearful of this little man because he would just, they figured he'd just snap you in half and he got all these big football players, right? So anyway, my mom came home from the teacher interview and, and um, I said, how'd it go, mom? And my mom was a bit of an introvert. And she said, well, son, she said, Mr. Wong likes you. I said, well, that's a good start. I said, what else? She said, he doesn't have anything for you at Scott Park Secondary. He doesn't have anything to offer you. There's nothing here for you. But he says you're going to do great. Hmm. Isn't that so bizarre? he knew. He knew. He knew. He you saw. Know? And I, he saw. I went the, he saw. I went to the first I went to the first college. I studied national advertising. I didn't like the guy that was running the program because he all he wanted to do was focus on photography. Well, I could see photography was, I don't know why I, I thought this. I thought, what a waste of time standing around with a camera trying to get a shot when you can go out and talk to like a, a hundred people. Like I think back to my snow shoveling days. I mean, I pray for snow and I get all dressed up in all my winter gear. And I remember asking my mom the day, uh, the, the year my dad died, I said, buy me the biggest shovel you can. That's what I want for Christmas. And I prayed for snow and I would go out and make hundreds of calls. My no ratio was probably, I don't know, 95%. But all I thought was the people were the same as I was. They just didn't have money to pay me. But I, if, I, if I could find the right customers and what I refer to them as chasing the smart money, chasing active money in the market, then I got mm -hmm. the KFC for lunch. I was soaking wet. I was cold. I was exhausted. I got a great workout and I had 10 bucks in my pocket and that's heaven. Yep. I shoveled snow too, Patrick. You're talking about a kid that woke up extra early so he could beat his brother out to get to the best customers first, because we all knew who paid the most 
who paid the second most, who paid the third most. And uh, those people were tough back then. They were not pushovers like people are today. They would tell you so what they, they would pay, and that was it. They, they had no money. Like if a buck was what they had, you better grab the buck. But, you, but yeah. what you did was you, shov you shoveled faster. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, there was still quiet all over the place. <laughs> yeah. Five bucks was so a great driveway. <laughs> so here's the last little funny bit about growing up. I got kicked out of the first college I was in, and I think it was a good thing. Uh, I ended up uh, finding a college in Oakville called Sheridan College. It was 20 miles away from where I lived. And I took a ride for a couple of weeks with a couple of guys who are just, they weren't into it. And they were doing things in the car on the way to school. I just knew how important it was to me. And so I said to the guys, I said, guys, I, I can't continue doing what you're doing in the car on the way to school. And so for that reason, I can't participate anymore. And the guy looked at me and says, you're a joke. You can't make it here without me. I went, really? Watch me. So I wake up at Dang. 6 o'clock in the morning. I wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning with my big portfolio bag full of all my layouts. I would eat as much food as I could in Hamilton. I took two buses downtown out to the uh, Queen Elizabeth Highway, which was one of the biggest highways in those days uh, in southern Ontario. And I would stick my thumb out halfway down the ramp, sometimes at the bottom of the ramp. And I would stare down the drivers. And I always wore like really bright clothing. And I had work boots on. I had this big portfolio bag. I never missed a day at school. I hitchhiked right through the winter. I only missed the silver medal by one grade, by one grade. And I graduated that college. And you know what? Years later, I went back to serve on the advisory board. And, um, you know, 20 years has passed by, 30 years. And so I'm sitting around this room with all these profs. I was working um, for Seldom in those days. And, you know, I developed a pretty nice career. And the one guy looks at me, he says, what's your last name? And I said, Tinny. So I don't know why that name's bugging me. He said, you were in the program here. I said, yeah, I think I was in the second year they ran it back in uh, 76. I said, I'm the hitchhiker. They went. <laughs> Never I'm that guy. Yeah, I'm the guy. <laughs> you know? So throughout all your books and through everything that I've gathered about you, Patrick, it's a, it, it runs through everything. You have always been willing to give more than anyone else. Uh, you've always had a can-do attitude. You've always considered obstacles as just something to get around, over, under. It's not going to stop me no matter what. And even bosses, uh, your book in the bonus round, I, I, I saw where you were kind of maneuvering around bosses that didn't quite have the vision and or the ability that you had. And you still got the job done. And I think that's something that 
It doesn't matter if you're in retail or wholesale, and it doesn't even matter what you do in this life. There's always going to be something. There's going to be some reason why you can't do something, but you did it anyway. And that to me is an important story that needs to be told again and again and again, because I become fearful sometimes that maybe we're losing, um, and we're, we're, we're losing, uh, the ability to go through obstacles and to overcome. And to me, part of being human is the ability to work around anything that could be considered an obstacle, obstacle and get the job done no matter what. And so I just want to applaud you publicly. Oh, geez. You know, we, God, God, God gives us this gift. You know, we're born into the world. Some people win the genetic lottery. So let's be honest about that. You know, like they're always going to be taken care of. And when I talked to Anthony Iannarino, uh, who's written some beautiful books, he runs a great business. Yes. He's, you know, he's been really successful. Started from, you know, the bottom. And he said, my biggest fear is that my children don't have enough adversity. Yes. And, you know, um, I, you either let adversity fuel you or you let it eat you. Yep. And, and there are times when you have to retreat, but a retreat is a time to go back and think. If you think about the book, The Art of War, which was the first strategy book ever written. It was in China. I think it was around a thousand years ago. It might be longer. Uh, General uh, Sun Tzu. If you haven't read the book, it's a great book. And his whole idea was, how do you win wars without anybody getting hurt? And I think if you apply that to your personal life and you say, how do I, how do I finish things that are bigger than me? Knowing that there are going to be people who walk in and literally say, Pat, what you're doing is crazy. And that happened to me. And just say, you, you can't do this. You can't get it done. There's no way. I was talking with a colleague this morning. We got talking about this whole notion. And he was funny. He called me up about the bonus round. He had just finished it over the weekend. And he's going, Tinny, he said, I don't know. Like, you were using things that other people weren't using. And, 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 and he said, like, how did you figure out, you know, this whole idea around templates and the whole idea of, of trying to figure out how to take a, a $40 million business apart because you felt there wasn't enough profit in it and you didn't know where the profit was so that you could sell it more efficiently. And I said, you know what? I, I just felt that um, there were differences in the way that we described the business when I would listen to all these leaders come together from across Canada. And by the way, I was, you know, I was looking at people around the world. We had a guy in strategy committee that I sat on and I was just a sales rep. And we got talking about how they did business in New Zealand and uh, they got themselves involved in um, uh, umbrella contracts. And, you know, like the worst thing that ever happened to a cheese factory is that your only customer becomes the biggest pizzeria in the world. You suddenly wake up in your slave labor. 
because yeah. you're a total commodity. So the question becomes, how do you create something out of something that's there, but embellish and make it much bigger, scale it up? How do you scale things up? And the other thing is, how do you take a crazy project? And I always looked at, so my territory was around 13, uh, 35 million bucks, sorry, uh, in the mid 1990s. I had the largest retail territory in the company, dealt with really big companies, you know, uh, a lot of North American brands like, you know, Toys R Us and Home Depot and Lowe's and a whole bunch of others, you know, we know who the bigs are. And they uh, they had a different way of looking at things. They, they're very scrappy, I, especially a company called the Hudson's Bay Company, which uh, um, has been purchased by a group account. Like Yeah. And, you know, they started off as a fur trading company 350 years ago. And they were, my boss used to refer to them as street fighters because, you know, we'd walk into their offices and one of their vice presidents would stand there in the hallway swinging a baseball bat as hard as he could. And he'd, he'd, he'd take that swing and go, Shoo! and then he'd kind of look up at us and he'd say, what do you got today for us, boys? That's how aggressive <laughs> they were. Wow. We're talking about a Louisville slugger. The pressure you talked about um, your appreciation for the causality of being involved with very, very large sales because of your success as a sales manager with your sales team. And then coming to that seminal moment when you realized that the amount of revenue that you were responsible was a conversion into jobs. and Yes. Money going on the table. You were responsible for putting food in little kids' mouths. Yeah. So the interesting thing is I had to be hit with a two by four over the head. Um, I mean, it literally happened about 15 years ago. And I guess, you know, we, we all get old tapes playing in our head, right? So my old tape is poor boy. I haven't been poor for, I don't know, 30, 40 years, but I always feel that way. So, you know, the way I've always come at my business is very aggressive, work really, really hard for my dealers, help them make as much money as possible and my success will come. And, and, and that's happened. And you know, I was talking to the president of one of the companies that I represent and he just kept thanking me and thanking me. And I said, Steve, stop. It's my pleasure. He goes, you don't understand. He goes, you bring over a third of all the revenue into this company. He goes, you're responsible for 33 plus percent people's jobs out here. People have jobs, they have houses, they have kids. Those kids need braces. They need a roof over their head. They need food in their belly. And you, Primo Furniture Sales provides that. And I'm thankful. Yeah, dumb me. I, I never got it. I got it then. Thank God. Because that's much more powerful to me as a human being 
much more powerful to go out and do the things that you need to do to be successful for something bigger than myself. Oh, just the way I'm wired. Oh man, that's that's ambrosia. I used to say to my family, I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing it for you. Cuz this is too hard. It's yeah. too hard. It's too many hours. You know, there's too much stress. There's too many holidays where you you know, you get to the last day of the holiday and that's the only really good day you had because the first five you were stressed. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and and, and I'm, I think you and I have, you know, a wonderful bridge that we share. And that is that, you know, there's a mental state of hunger that exists there that's never going to go away. No. You know, I, no. I remember that um, I had a magazine go bankrupt on me after I sold advertising in Alberta at the uh, South Edmonton Times. And I was, oh, I don't know, I was 20 years old. And I came back and I got involved with this magazine and it was a launch and I worked for six months. My draw was a hundred bucks a week. And so I, I worked up about $6,000 worth of commission back in 79, which was a lot of money in those yeah. days. And uh, I borrowed money all over the place because I knew I could pay everybody back once the magazine launched. And then I had all these you know, residual sales because I sold multiples. The day before yeah. it was supposed to be launched, my checks bounced. Oh, my and I owed everybody in Hamilton a bag of money. So the only go to work where I knew I could get a job right away so I could pay everybody back was International Harvester where my dad died. And I worked in the ovens, 400 degree ovens, one workstation away from the place where he built the big implements that were dragged behind international harvester tractors. Wow. So on my breaks, never got to say goodbye. My dad died on the spot. Like he had a, um, an aortic aneurysm, I think. So he died within like a minute or two. And I'm the spitting, mm -hmm. spitting image of my father. And the guys would come over and they look at me and they say, gotta get out of here, kid. We can't take another one. Uh. And it was after that, that I got a call from the Oakville Journal Record. <laughs> it just shows you how much, how much of a, of a knucklehead I am. I get a call at home because I had to go back and live with my parents. And it was 1979. And the voice on the other end of the phone says, uh, is this Patrick Tinney? I said, yeah. He says, this is Edward J. Kodire from the Oakville Journal Record. We remember interviewing you at Sheridan College. I said, yeah. He said, we're looking for somebody right now. I said, yeah. He said, are you gainfully employed? I said, of course I am. What are you thinking? <laughs> I told him I was gainfully employed working in an oven. <laughs> he didn't need to know that. He didn't need to know that. <laughs> No, he didn't need to know that. He didn't know, need to know how much uh, you liked it. You were gainfully employed. Hey, I was a roller. <laughs> yeah. Steel roller. <laughs> you know, and I, I had to start off as a junior. So, you know, here I am. I've, you know, I've won the Teat and Advertising Award. Like, a, you know, I was one of these guys that was supposed to make it. And I had to arrive early, early, early in the morning in Oakville 
this time I'm driving now because I got a 72 Chevy, a Biscayne, by the way, beautiful car. Uh, not so good with the engine mounts because you turn it over and the whole car would go like this. <laughs> oh, but, Lord. I'd arrive at seven o'clock in the morning because my responsibility, get ready for this, was to make sure all the cut books that we would use to make advertisements were all ready for the the sales team to come in and work with, have all the coffee ready, make sure that everything was ready for whatever meetings were going to take place. And and by the way, I was basically the, the welcoming committee in the morning. That that falls to a new salesperson often. It 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 reminds us that in today's culture, and this is one of the big problems I think we're having, you know, around leadership. I don't talk about this very often, but I think it's really important. Is that there used to be a, a hierarchical uh, condition in companies, and you know, because of databases and because of all of the things that we've learned about business and we read a lot more. I mean, I read 25, 30 books a year. I teach this stuff. I think I'm okay at it. And the problem is, is your best sales guy could be quite young and be, you know, very well educated. And by the way, a, a bachelor's degree isn't what it was 20 years ago. Nope. And you walk in and you sit down and you say, okay, so I'm going to be sales rep for a year and then I want to be vice president. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, and it, and it kind of reminds me of, uh, and I, you know, I, I don't want to be disparaging with, with people, but, you know, I had no intention of writing any books. I, when I, when I left the company, I, I just kind of looked for a hole in the marketplace and the hole that I saw was sales negotiation. And I thought, geez, the guys in the States are doing a really good job. I mean, they build it into their universities, their colleges. We didn't really have it then. It was starting to percolate, but there was nothing in negotiation. And it all began by me sitting down and writing all of the nasty things that anybody had ever done to me in a negotiation, putting a label on it. Mm. And then I built models. And... Um, I can remember taking my models out to show people what I was doing. And so I got involved with one of the, uh, not one of these, the biggest college in Canada, it's called Seneca. And I went in and showed the um, assistant chair lady uh, what I was doing and, you know, saying, you know, I, I wonder if there's a chance we work together. She happened to be a, an old family friend. She sat there and she looked at this stuff for a while. And she says, I got to put you in touch with one of our instructors. And I trust you and I trust him. And I think you should sit together. And I said, okay. So I called this guy. His name was Joel. We met up in the airport. And I walked in and I said, um, Barbara says that I should show you everything I've been working on for the last, you know, eight months. And he goes, okay, what is it? And so I spread it all out on the table, all my models, all my hierarchical bases. Because if you remember in my books, everything has to have a, almost like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs to fall back on when things go wrong in a negotiation you remove all the negative risk you imply positive risk you apply it so that there can be um uh, not just a piece of the pie but an expanded piece of the pie in your book you talk about you know don't just sell them a mattress sell them some you know some really nice you know uh, you know heavy, heavily threaded linens so that when they get in that bed the linens are a little heavier you know, sell them beautiful pillows, 
sell them pillows that are neck forming, you know, um, nice nightstands, you know, with, you know, lights that, you know, are, you know, we, we, we've got new ways of looking at lighting now. Not like the old days where you're dealing with bulbs and stuff like that. We've got intelligent beds. Mm -hmm. The do. world, the, the, the world is, 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 is changing that way, you know, and, you know, we've kind of, kind of got to change with it. But the, the thing is, on the way through all of this, Pete, is a massive amount of iterations and learning. And, yeah. you know, it, it, it's like when I read your book, I, I thought, Pete just said one of the funniest things in the world. But it's that kind of heretic thinking that I just love so much. And that is, you said, if you want to do something really attention grabbing, hire a whole bunch of picketers to walk around your store screaming, those oh in there, we can't take it anymore. <laughs> well, it, it takes uh, a heretic a tick to know another heretic uh, because uh, I, I see that throughout your writings as well, my friend. Oh man. As a, I, as a matter of fact, I, I, I'm going to take a little break here. And I am going to read very quickly, it just takes two or three minutes, a chapter out of my book because I got to pay the bills. And it's called it. Chapter 69, Hire a Mystery Shopper. Familiar with this, Pat? Yeah, that's a great, that's a In great lesson. Inspect what you expect. Inspect what you expect. Employees and team members are inherently critical for many businesses. If you have them, you know the health and profitability of your business is directly related to how employees and team members are interacting with each other, your customers, and vendors. Therefore, it's critical you have a system in place to inspect what is going on in your business when you're not explicitly watching. One way to accomplish this is to hire mystery shoppers. Hired as independent contractors, mystery shoppers are posers, operating in stealth-like fashion to assess your business operations. They are charged with specific tasks, such as taking photographs, purchasing a product or service, returning a product, registering complaints, asking questions of salespeople, and behaving in another way similar to how a real customer would act. The whole point is to inspect how your employees and team members are interacting with your customers. Are they doing the right things? Are they saying the right things? The mystery shoppers will then report back to the business owner with details about their experiences. Many times the results are scary. Be prepared to be shocked at what you discover. Do a web search on mystery shoppers to learn more about generating your own system or hiring a professional firm to do it for you. Read No BS Ruthless Management of People and Profits. No Holds Barred, Kick Butt, Take No Prisoner's Guide to Really Getting Rich by Dan Kennedy. For more ideas on inspecting what you expect. And by the way, I have a dear friend um, that I recommended that book to and he did not want to read it because he thought it was took too dim a view of the human condition. And that was before his controller stole over $2 million from him. 
So, uh, yeah. yeah, you know, uh, anywhere, I'm a, any, any, there's cash involved. Uh, we had that happen in the newspaper industry. Uh, I, you know, it's like golf courses. If you want, you, you want to see one of the biggest uh, places to, um, you know, to catch things that shouldn't be happening. Just look at the starter. Now they, everything, everything is ticketed. And, but in the old days, if you wanted to know where money was disappearing, that's where it would happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No doubt, no doubt. So I have, I have to read something from your book. And this really, really hit a nerve with me. As a matter of fact, it made me think of something very specific in my athletic career. But I have to read this. It's on page 128. It speaks to who you are. And I believe that no matter what we sell, who we sell to, we sell from a good feeling about us. We know that when we look in the mirror, we see a good person looking back at us. And we sell from that. So I'm going to read this. It might sound odd, but the right thing to do does not always mean we win at all costs, at least not in my world. And I just said, amen, Pat, God bless you. I was in a power, it has nothing to do with business, but it illustrates the point. I was in a powerlifting meet. I was lifting against the national champion. It was the first time that I was on that kind of a stage and, uh, the guy that I was competing against, um, ran out of smelling salts. And so I told my coach, give him my smelling salts. And he goes, okay. And then, uh, his knee wrap broke and I said, mm -hmm. give him my knee wrap. Yeah. And he pulled me aside after that. And he said, I don't know what you're trying to do here, Pete, but you were given two advantages and you gave them right back. And I just looked at him and I said, there's only one way I want to win in anything in this life. I want him to have to look at me at the end of the day and say, you're stronger than me. You didn't win because I didn't have my smell insults. You didn't win because my knee wrap broke. There's gonna be no excuses. And he looked at me like I had two heads. Something else happened. Maybe his wrist wrap, something else happened too. There were, there were by the end of it, there were three things. Yeah. And, you know, I was lucky. I, I won and he shook my hand and he said, thanks. He goes, very few lifters would have helped me. He goes, you are the strongest guy I've ever lifted against in my life. And you got to remember, it was like my second or third power lift in me. I was kind of brand new to the sport, but I, I, the way it all happened is I'm looking in this power lifting magazine and I'm going, I lift more than that. I can lift more than this. And I'm like, <clears throat> I'm going to try my hand at this thing. And so when I read that in your book, it just made me think of that, of that situation that I ran into. Um, it really speaks to who you are. And one of the things throughout your book that I constantly see, I, I just see 
a person who has learned over time to believe in himself, a person who has taken full 100% responsibility for the results that he obtains and is willing to give whatever it is that has to be given to get those results. Am I putting words in your mouth, Pat? Uh, I come back to, and I know I, I, I don't want to sound corny here, okay? So I'm not, I'm a spiritual guy. Um, I say my prayers every night. But I just believe that we're all given a set of gifts when we first enter the world. And I think a lot of people waste their gifts. You know, and I, I keep trying to tell people, you know, who get down on themselves and, you know, they they take the word no as an affront. You know, they, you know, like sometimes when I, I, I sometimes I meet with clients and I just go, I walked away from a $50,000 deal as a, you know, as a trainer because I, I knew the guy was going to do it wrong. He had people coming in from India and China. And if you've, you know, you've read my books, you know, one of the things that I believe strongly about is a SWOT analysis on a deal. Yeah. I have people coming up to me the, to this day and they're going like, how did you arrive at that synthesis of looking at a at a deal that way and it, it, it happened a little bit later in my career but once i saw it um i i thought to myself man that's an extra set of armor because i could teach myself how to think and swat well you see once once you start to think using systems where logic is involved then you can start to peel away things that are the truth and aren't the truth or 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 could be probable and, and once you start to think in probabilities then you, th you think to yourself and you say, if somebody tells me I can't do something, what are the probabilities of me actually doing it? Yeah. And it's like when I first started with the books, you know, my, my, my wife comes from a very um, conservative family, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a guy who, you know, dug it out of the ground. I always dug it out of the ground. Nobody gave me anything. There was, there was no, nothing to give. I, there was no family inheritance. There was zero. And um, I, had a, I had a publisher, I got on the phone with this, this guy who was a consultant. And he said, you know, your book Unlocking Yes, he says, um, you know, he says, you're going to have to get back in the box. And I said, uh, what does the box mean to you? He said, well, first of all, your pricing's wrong. $24.99, he says, for a new author, that's wrong. He said, it's $19.99. That price point is, is conditional in manners in the market. And he said, you're going to do the following things, yada, yada, yada. And my wife's sitting there with me and she's on the line and I, I could feel my chili starting to warm up. And because I'm a, I, I studied print and production, I knew things about the print process that this guy didn't. And I just said, sorry, pal, I'm not getting in any box. And my wife's going, Pat, don't do that. And I'm going, watch me. Yeah. Watch me. And you spent your whole career not getting in the box. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, I, 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 I didn't, I didn't, I don't want to write books. I didn't know, I, I didn't want to do that. I had people keep saying to me, you know, Pat, 
we're reading. Uh, so what I what I started to do was I started to write small pieces and send them out to customers so I could build Centroid training. You know, and I would say, all right, so so here's what I'm thinking about. You know, uh, what you should do after a deal is done, an important deal. What I want you to do is sit down and do a postmortem. Because the postmortem is actually the beginning of the next sale. Sure is. If you, want, if you want to grow the pie, you have to understand exactly what happened during the construction of that pie and make copious notes. Yeah. Because the next time you meet that customer, you say, Pete, how did you enjoy X? How did that change your life? Do you want to say hi? Do you want to say hi, kitty cat? My kitty cat wants to say hi. <laughs> Come here. Oh, beautiful tab. You want to say hi. Hello. That's this Sparky? is Hunter. Hunter. This is Hunter. Hunter the Wonder Cat. Are you done? Yeah, you're done. I can feel your little heart beating. You're like, hey, that's enough, Dad. It's enough TV I time. I love when they march across your desk while you're working on a report and they and the and the tail starts going all over the place and it's like, you know, dad, uh, like it's it's treat yeah. time, okay? Enough with this biz stuff. Exactly. 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 You know. But um yeah, you know what you so and I, Pat, I, I, I I I wanna go back really quick. Yep. So anyone that doesn't know, I'm gonna do this in 10 or 20 seconds. What a SWOT analysis is, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And you do it uh, in a competitive, uh, when you're looking at an opportunity with a customer, you look at all those things, but you also look at it in terms of your, you prepare for your potential um, do you, do you see him in the back there, Pat? He's in, he's right over my shoulder. That's cool. <laughs> um, you, you, you do, you do this SWOT analysis, not only of your potential, um, customer, but you do it of all your competitors that might be, uh, that you might be competing against. And what, it, what it creates for you is a bunch of Intel and it, it very quickly reveals where the opportunities and liabilities are and what you need to shore up. And, you know, a lot of times uh, a customer is looking for something and he or she is actually looking for the wrong thing. They think they need A, but they need B. Uh, they want more margin, but really where they're falling down is they're not getting enough stock turns. Um, and they yeah. would be better off giving up a point in margin and getting more stock turns and having more money to advertise with. But hey, I digress. No, 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 no. Hang on for a sec. That, you just said something really important. You see, velocity in in stock turnover is is the new it right now because that's that's how you have um, you know you know, where the back room is moved to the front of the store, just in time delivery, Walmart and a couple of other big companies like Canadian Tire here in Canada, they perfected it. I was talking with a colleague this morning about uh, the beginnings of Walmart and, you know, 
the way that Sam Walton, uh, because Walmart was one of my biggest customers here in Canada. And um, uh, the way that he used to think about retail was, yeah, you know, he's got all the little uh, nightgowns and, you know, lollipops and all kinds of things on the outside of the store to get you in. But, you know, it's once you get inside the store, it all becomes about basket total. As I say to people that I talk to, and, and, and here's, here's, a, here's a little something that you, perhaps you say this, Pete, because I think this would be intuitive for you, but if it isn't, I, I, I wanna share it with your viewers. And that is if, if you're a retailer, when a customer comes in, don't ask them how they are. They could be having the worst day of their lives. What I want you to do is I, I want you to invite them into your home and say, welcome to, and in our particular case in Peterborough here, we've got a small, uh, actually sizable uh, furniture place, but it's, it's called Bennett's. And it, it was born in the town that I was born in uh, 64 years ago. Um, and the next thing you want to ask is what's on your list today? Ah, says, I like that. Says, the person says, I don't have a list. I'm in here to look at some end tables. And you say, oh, goodness, everybody's got a list. I mean, we've got all kinds of beautiful, um, you know, accessories all around the store here. And I mean, certainly you have birthdays coming up that you have to buy for, you have anniversaries. Um, can, I, can, I, can I hand you a pad here? And can we just kind of sit down and think about some of the things that you need? And by the way, let me show you something so cool that you're not going to believe it. And of course, this is a Pete promo. This is your friend who's in the mattress business. I want to show you a mattress that I know you're not going to buy, but you should at least see how it works because I can't believe how cool it is. And so you walk them up to the most expensive mattress and you say, look at this thing, do all these things. It does everything but a flick double sow cow, like in the, uh, um, you know, in the, in, in the, uh, in the high flying, uh, you know, uh, Olympic skating business. Now, what's your budget and how can we help you today? Yep. One of the fascinating things about you to me is that we have both spent our entire careers doing the same thing, exactly the same thing. You've helped retailers be successful. You've done a lot of different things, but I want to talk to you about, you saw a micro trend in your industry. And I, I, I would imagine that your gut reaction was, how do I save the ROP? Because the flyers are eaten into the ROP so bad that, you know, how do I save it? But you went a different way. You said, how do I maximize the flyer business and the few competitors that I have coming in there? How do I defend that? And how do I position my companies as the best alternative for a retailer to buy flyers from? So I want you to talk about that a little bit because I, I, I we all have. Just, I, I think you're ahead. just heading into the, the psychiatry business because you you kind of figured me out a little bit. <laughs> you know, I. I I can remember, you know, you can see writing on the wall for certain things. And, you know, we could see um, that when flyers first entered the market, 
uh, believe it or not, it was way, way, way back in about 1980. Now, prior to that, we had things called catalogs. Yep. Sears had a catalog, you know, a whole bunch of people had catalogs. And then retailers discovered that newspapers didn't have great control over full color. Retailers discovered that flyers um, could become a much greater cost center than a full page ad. So we had retailers approaching us in the early 1980s and saying, all right, so we want to run eight pages and we want to see if we can run it with multiple colors or full color. And our, our guys responded by saying, yeah, we're going to charge just like an ROP ad, one page at a time. Anyway, the logic, the logic fell away. And, um, you know, we, at least I came to discover very early. I, I can remember the first time I walked into the Toronto Star, it was, believe it or not, it was for a mausoleum. And they had 19 different colors of flyers and they were single sheets. And they wanted to run them by our delivery zones. And I walked into the mailroom of the Toronto Star and we actually had days where we would sell out of the newspaper. In other words, the newspaper got to be about two and a half inches thick on a Saturday. You just couldn't put anything more in it. Wow. And I had the um uh I, I had the, the the then production manager throw me out of his office. He was a big Scottish guy with red hair and you know called me every everything in the book. And I said, but I need you to do this. I need you to deliver each one of these flyers by each one of our different zones and no crossover, no mistakes. And he cursed me as only a good Scott can, but he did it. <laughs> and that was my first entry into that. And it's kind of like when I, I, I walked into the YMCA and I was like 20 years old back in, uh, I was 22 uh, in Oakville. And I said, uh, you, you, guys, you guys run a, uh, a program for the Y. You, you deliver two programs a year. So everybody knows what courses you're offering here at the, at the building and everything. I'd like to bid on that. And the woman kind of looked at me and she said, okay. I mean, nobody's ever, you know, sure, why not? I didn't know if we could do it or not. I just had, I believed in my team. So I went back and I said, okay, um, we need to do this thing. Um, is everybody on board? And they said, yeah, but you're going to have to do the following things because we can't do all those things because we run a newspaper. And I said, sure, I'll take care of that. So I took care of all the organization and we delivered. So, so the thing is, is that uh, once you do things that are smaller and you become very, comfortable and confident with them, then you start this whole um, notion, Pete, about embracing larger risk. Once you've, once you've handed the guy the smelling salts and your knee wrap, and you go into the next competition and you see somebody like that again, um, it's like me when I go to book signings, I see authors that are doing the book signings wrong, they sit behind the table nobody's going to come up to you while you're sitting behind a table. You got to get out in front of the table and stand there with a business card and saying, um, is there anybody in your family that's involved in business? Yep. How many people in your family take, are in business? It takes a salesman, a really good salesman to figure that out. You show up with a, you show up with a, with a little uh, um, bowl of candy wrap candy that sits on the author's desk. Why? Because kids come running up and moms chase kids and dads chase moms. Yep. 
And then a conversation. And then a conversation begins, right? And so, you know, I I think just kind of rounding a bunch of this stuff out, I, you know, to me, it's about, it's about, it's about a life well lived. It's about helping people. It's about helping people in what I would call a lower self-interest manner. You know, I, I could have done more with my career in the corporate world had I chosen to, but what's happened after the corporate world has been three or four times as big because I was prepared. And the reason that I was prepared, Pete, was that I took all of those positive risks and that set me up for that moment of truth. Yeah, this struck me in your book. It's on page 128 at the very bottom. Be strong, be brave, and show integrity. You will be remembered for it. And I just got to pause here to make a little commercial. This show is available as a podcast on your favorite platform. Search for The Pete Primo Show. And that is the end of my commercial. But I have to um, I have to say this, Pat, because you're not going to do it. So I'm going to do it for you. So Christmas is coming up, guys. And we have to wrap this up. And we, I could talk to Pat for three hours and never cover everything I have a question about. If you have a salesman in your in your family, get him or her this book, Unlocking Yes. The revised edition. Yep, the new one. This book is a must. Perpetual hunger. Anybody that's in sales needs to understand this. And I'm going to tell you guys something right now. If you're an RSA, get that book. And I'm going to tell you why. The biggest mistake you make in your entire career is that you expect your business owner to bring all the customers into your little lap. I'm going to tell you something right now. The great ones have their own business, their own sales business, and they reach out and they bring customers into the store on their own. It's true, and you haven't thought about it. I want you to start thinking about it. I have my business inside of this other business. It's not just my owner's responsibility to bring customers in. I'm on commission. My family doesn't eat if nobody comes in. Guess what? I need to reach out and I need to get customers in the store for me. Not for any other salesman, for me, for you, and for your family. And then the last one, this is your PhD in sales. And I said it before and I'll say it again. This book, the bonus round, I don't care if you're a B2B salesman. If you are, it's a PhD. It is a must have. If you are a retail store owner or a business owner of any kind, you want to talk about hunger you want to talk about passion, you want to talk about going the extra mile, read that book. Go get it on Amazon right now. Pat Tinney is special and you need to be reading this stuff and you need to be applying it to your lives and you'll be better off for it. I'm sorry, Pat. Sometimes I get going and I just did. (laughs) Well, you know what? Um, I, I just think, 
Pete, that um, the, the right kind of people attract the right kind of people. Amen, brother. Pat, in chapter 28, live in your corporate uh, brand. You found yourself in an unusual position. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, you know, I think every once in life we're we're um, we're we're stuck um, in positions where we just never expected to be with people that we really care about. And I had a um, um, I had my coordinator. Uh, his name was Jack. He came in to see me in my office. You know, I mean, I was responsible for a lot of money, but Jack was responsible for all my money getting into the system. So, you know, I mean, he's pivotal to our team. And he just said, you know, I got I got to leave the team, you know, and I, I got to go off and do something else. And I want to go sell. And I said, geez, that's a great idea. And he said, um, there's a job uh, coming up, uh, you know, with the magazine group. And uh, I really feel good about it. And I feel like I'm prepared. And uh, I'm I'm going to go and, and apply for the job. And I just kind of dropped my head a little bit. And I said, uh, Jack, uh, I've applied for the same job. And he looked back at me almost like I shot his dog. And he said, I, I can't beat you, can I? And I said, don't think that way. The way I want you to think is that I'm going to prepare you so well that when you arrive at those interviews, you're not only going to be good enough, you're going to be better than necessary to beat me. And he said, well, why would you do that? And I said, well, you know, the retail team is a brand and, you know, we're, we're kind of a, a family and you've helped all of us out. And if we just kind of let you, you know, throw you to the wolves, I mean, we haven't done our jobs and um, we're all in this together. So I prepared Jack for weeks and weeks and weeks. We went through all kinds of, uh, of you know, various, you know, simulations and, uh, he went into that interview and, and honest to goodness, he came out of that interview and he was like three inches taller. I don't know what happened to him. I really don't. He, he was just a different guy. Um, I ended up landing the job. Um, but, you know, I said to him in our meetings, I said, Jack, Jack you got to remember, you, you got to get ready and interview uh, a lot when opportunities come up. Because, the, you know, when you're interviewing, it's almost like it's, it's almost like a workout, like you're 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 getting warmed up. Yeah. And so when the next uh, sales position come up in the company, he just didn't win it. He crushed it. And, and then he went on to become one of the youngest publishers we ever had. And the guy's career has been stellar, just stellar. And it's all because he had all of those skill sets and somebody didn't take a high self-interest position and, you know, not give him that chance to be the best that he could be. Now, not everybody is ready he was ready and you saw he was ready and you put the effort in and it turned out to be very special so if i were to be able to talk to jack and i were to ask him about patrick tinney i am sure that he would have an awful lot of nice things to say about you maybe things that would make you blush <laughs> uh, you know what? Listen, I shouldn't say listen. I, I, I keep hearing that on, on all these radio stations. Listen, listen, listen. Um, 
you, you know, if you're given the opportunity to spend time with somebody who has special skills, why would you not help them explore those skills to, to you know, because it's, it's like I keep saying to people, um, and then I won't carry on any further, but if you can throw a baseball at 100 miles an hour with great accuracy, does it really matter if you're not the best catcher on the team? Exactly. But if you can see that 100 miles an hour and you just say, okay, Jack, come on over here. And I just want you to, uh, you know, pick up a little bit of control with a knuckleball now so that we can move the ball up and down. You're throwing it beautifully straight. But what if we could just, what if we could make that ball drop just at the perfect moment? That's all I did. Yeah. Yeah. And I see that you think nothing of it, but I'm sure it was a big deal to Jack because that was a pivot point for him. It was a plot point change in the novel called his life. And you were part of it because you were willing and able to see the way it was. And you were actually willing to risk your own well-being uh, for, for his sake. Uh, so that goes back to the whole thing about how you feel about yourself, why you deserve to get the business that you've gotten. You didn't, Pat, you, you never got a deal that you didn't earn 10 times over ever, ever. And I believe yeah. that that's where we sell from. Yeah. And, and you know what? It, it's knowing the right time to step away from deals. I mean, I've written in a couple of spots in the book where I just said, man, like we can't, we cannot get into this deal because if we do, and this is where my people just wanted to kill me, but I worried about price contagion. And when you have uh, defined margins and all of a sudden the margins start to fall, then uh, there has to be some kind of a, a cost correction. The cost correction usually involves jobs. Sure does. Sure does. Pat, I'm looking forward to book number four. I know I've teased you with this before, but why not four? Um, I think the short answer would be I need a little rest. <laughs> yeah. Take some rest. <laughs> Take a break, Pat. Thanks, Take man. a break. Enjoy the fruit of your labor, but keep giving us more because, you know, it's not just the techniques, Pat. Your techniques are great. Your stories to me are even better. But what under the character that underlies the stories to me, is where the rubber meets the road and is the most important part. So, you know, it, it's no accident that you had the success that you had. You, you were a guy who didn't take no. You were a guy that went over, under, around obstacles. Um, I think that the best thing in the world to say to, to you, Pat, is do you want to know something, Pat? I, I don't think you can write book number four. Because oh, it's going to be ding, ding, ding. 
It's going to be ding, ding, ding. Oh, no, not that. <laughs> I understand you, Pat. Oh, I understand you, know, you. You know, I just finished Unlocking Yes, and I get this note from a guy over in Geneva, and he says, Pat, he says, would you meet me in Toronto? He says, I want to talk to some Canadian business people. I'll make a long story short. His name was Tamar Hagazi. He was the Global Minister of Entrepreneurship, Economic Development, Strategic Partnerships. For and he says, you have to write a book for all these entrepreneurs around the world as the white collar uh, uh, um, corporations flatten out. And I said, I'm exhausted. I said, it, it took me forever to finish this book. He says, yeah, but you got to write another one. And it, three hours, we were over lunch. And, and you know, we talked about global politics and all the rest of it. And I, and I didn't agree to write the book. But anyway, I dedicated the book to Tamara. You can see it in the front. You can look him up on LinkedIn. He's there. Yeah. And yeah. Um, uh, I woke up on, that, that happened in the summer of 2.15. I woke up on January 1st, 2.16. I, I opened up my computer and I could see the entire book, Perpetual Hunger. Wow. I wrote, I wrote 30,000 words of content in about seven weeks. Finished. Wow. You are Around on the fire. Clock. No rest. Yeah. It was no just rest. pouring and out of you. And then I bolted it together with, um, uh, with Unlocking Yes. And, and the thing that I kind of knew in the back of my mind, and so one of the things I just want to end with here is, is that the three books represent a panoramic view. Uh, uh, Perpetual Hunger is the prospecting left-hand side where the customer enters. Um, the bonus round is the center, consultative selling. Uh, uh, this is where you grow your business, grow a bigger piece of the pie. And the, uh, the far side of the panoramic view is unlocking yes, where you close deals and reopen new deals uh, uh, you know, to end up with what I refer to, and I think you do in, in your business, generational customers. You and I could spend a whole hour talking about generational customers. It's your next book, dude. Sorry. Oh, God. Yes. There it is. And that is my gift to you for being so patient today and giving us so much time. It's yours. I don't even want a royalty. Take it and run with it, my friend. But rest first. Please rest first. Pete. Thank you, Pat. Love you. You, you I tell you, this grape is looking a lot like a raisin right now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for everything, guys. Thanks for all the production crew. And thank, thank you. Bless you all. You're, you're hardworking people. Thank you. Thanks, Billy. Thanks, Simon. Thanks, Pat. And that does it for episode nine. As the Dage would do.